0: Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. And one of the themes we just hit on all the time around here is agencies. Essentially, what's the end game for agencies? And then a lot of product entrepreneurs or software entrepreneurs end up spinning up agencies as sort of backup plans or complementary businesses. And I think they're fascinating in the way that they can sort of lead to unexpected outcomes. And today's episode is a lot more than just that, but it's also a case study in where agencies can lead you. So the brand we're going to look at today is Smart Passive Income, and we're going to talk to the CEO of that brand. Of course, Pat Flynn founded a blog called Smart Passive Income in 2008. This was completely an OG blog and has been one of the most influential media brands in our space. And it's kind of interesting to call it a media brand, right? Like These businesses are growing up before our eyes. And I think it's interesting just to see what the next generation of, quote, four-hour workweek businesses are gonna look like on the web. Now, if you don't know about Smart Passive Income, it's grown from a blog into a podcast, subsequently into courses and ultimately memberships, which have helped thousands get into lifestyle businesses. Now, I've of course followed SPI over the years. And one of the things that really caught my attention is that they took on a CEO. And when I Googled the CEO and saw his background and how he was running an agency that was a service provider to SPI and many other people that have been on this podcast, I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting end game I'd really like to hear that story on the show and the results really delighted me. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did as a little bit of a CEO school. Just some of the few highlights is adding some legibility to a different sort of endgame for an agency, which is a merger with a product or a media brand and how a lot of companies in the media space that focused on information just a few years ago are turning to the community model. We're also gonna talk about how to manage and empower your team amongst many other things. Enjoy. Enjoy.
1: I'm Matt Gartland. I am the CEO these days of SPI Media uh, with my good friend, Pat Flynn. We've been growing a lot over the last several years, and uh, it's a big mission now in terms of what we're going after in terms of you know, community for online entrepreneurs. So what I do is I help make the business run. It's kind of a fun way of saying it, but like Pat's still kind of party in the front and I'm the business in the back and it works.
0: I think most of us are familiar with the Smart Passive Income podcast. Yes. I don't think we really
1: understand like sort of the scope of the business. I appreciate that, Dan, because it has evolved a a ton for folks that do know of Padden and and the podcast specifically. They might know that earlier in the business's like lifecycle, its history is that it was largely an affiliate marketing kind of based business model. There's a lot of success with partnerships with like ConvertKit and other tech companies. But we've really evolved and moved a long way beyond just that. So these days, right now, we are a distributed team. We have an in-house team, employees the whole nine yards with you know benefits on healthcare and four hundred one k. We're really matured in in that sense. If you include Pat and me as the two owners, uh, we have eleven people on the team in every time zone in the continental United States. And community is our the real focal point of our kind of priorities at large, but also now at the center of whatever generation of the business model we're on. So we're very much about having more direct relationships with our ultimate customers and building into membership-based experiences. And the biggest one right now, uh, we call the all-access pass. We can come maybe back around to it. Yeah, I'd like to
0: hear about like some of your favorite or best revenue streams. Oh, sure. Yeah. Do you guys talk about revenue or any kind of pointers about business success publicly?
1: Yeah, you no, know, we're, I'd say around like 2 million Um, to be a little bit broad there in terms sure. of our net growth. Your gross sales are around 2 million. Yes, right. Okay, uh, and great. it's been transforming in terms of like then the individual revenue streams underneath the hood, if you will, where again, if you rewound the clock three, four years, it would have been online core sales, like individual core sales as a primary revenue driver that one individual stream. And we've been deliberately changing and evolving the composition of the revenue still with growth in mind, you know, at a gross level based on just how we want to grow the business, how we're seeing macro trends, how we're seeing just like the creator economy space evolving in general. What are those
0: trends though? Is it like you're worried about courses not being as effective in the future because they're easier to create? Or what are some of those trends that would have you focus more towards community? Your
1: thought there is, is a good one. And it's intertwined in terms of our, I guess, insights uh, in kind of what we believe to be true, which is that the student relationship in terms of express demand, how we're seeing consumer demand materialize in terms of people buying our courses are you know, do it yourself, one-time purchase, and then more or less, it's on them to kind of, you know, go through the course. We're seeing such things as completion rates ticking down over the last few years. We're seeing express demand by just unit level sales from one major launch event to the next, you know, it's kind of have a decline in the emergence of other forms of education products uh, that would even include cohort based courses that have become popular as well. A very different sort of education experience as compared to a DIY based version. And I know I've now mentioned probably like three or four different dynamics, but there's a lot evolving, especially since 2016, 2017, when we at SPI came kind of hard out of the gate with courses and those popped and those did great. But now in 2023, it's a bit of a different landscape. So when we think about pandemic, post-pandemic, sort of even like life experiences, people want more togetherness. they want more access. And not just like to me or, or to Pat, they want more access to people like them that they can rely on more consistently to help apply what they're learning. And I think that's part of the magic that we've been going after and trying to build systematically into is the application of the learning, where in a siloed experience where you're just selling online courses to students that we have some relationship with, of course, because they're on our email list. They're maybe giving us some feedback and following us on social, but largely it's a disconnected learning experience. And if there was anything in terms of application, we would invite students, but they would have to take the action manually to like join a disconnected community like a Facebook group, right? Sort of, sort of OG yeah. style. And we did that. Uh, we have since deplatformed from Facebook. We have no student groups on Facebook anymore because we want to be more immersive. We want to be with our students more through the learning journey of our curriculum and then getting them to apply that into their businesses. They will have questions. They will have feedback. They will get stuck. And then we can be there for them, but we have to change the model pretty fantastically. So you're marrying the courses with a community experience that they're at different price points or you're kind of creating bundles, essentially. We're creating subscription products. So what we have done, and we launched it towards the end of last year, in concert with some other community-based programming that I can maybe come back to. But our real flagship hero SKU, if you want to use that language from like the e-commerce world or Wedge product. I was going to say, I want to hear the specs of your best community subscription product. Yeah. The specs. It is a subscription-based product. We're building into MRR for us on the business side. It's pegged on a $59 a month price point with quarterly and annual payment options. And it is a beautiful marriage, uh, a synthesis, truly, of our education courses, all of them as a catalog. You join our learning ecosystem and you get access to all of them. Wow. Day one, I walk in and I can dig into anything. Yep. So you get access to the catalog, plus you get community-based programming from my community experience team, all living in the same virtual interface. And this is all built on a platform called Circle, Circle Circle.so, which had got their start being kind of pure community. So without LMS capability, learning management system. So they did not out of the gate, have capability for creators and media companies like ours to like deploy courses, that was very recent. We have a really close relationship with them. Pat and I are advisors, full disclosure, to circle, sort of on the side. But we believe in this and we've been building into this for two plus years in terms of like changing very deliberately the vision for the company. And that started to even kind of come back to my personal story to where like very deliberately starting to move in a direction to where I take the reins of the company, at least officially, like a CEO. Pat's obviously still involved. But he's really focused on being then full-time creator again. So the podcast, the newsletter, and then I'm leading the team, I'm leading the company. And it's all again by design. How are your team deployed currently? Our community team is three people, a director and, and two community managers. It's not that it's new, but it's gaining more awareness, kind of in the general market of like, what is a good community professional? It's not just a mm. moderator. It's not just something that you would like find a VA to go to your Facebook group and make sure that people aren't using hate speech or overly hawking products or, and those are valuable things to do. Don't get me wrong, but that's sort of table stakes. What we're seeing now in terms of really fostering engagement, really playing into the value, you know, the value first, you know, the primary value of these community-based experiences is less the content, even though the content's important. It's more the networks, the network of the people, the peer-to-peer interactions, the habits and experiences that you would ritualize within these community-based experiences. You need good people to be able to facilitate and foster those sorts of connections and experiences more than just, again, like a VA that you would hire to like moderate.
0: What are some of the good rituals or things that work seem to be working?
1: Celebrating wins on a regular cadence, you know prompting people in the community to take action and then share back in through the language of like, you know what are your small wins that's building upon either, say, curriculum that we have or their declared intentions for as entrepreneurs, at least in our space. Like what are you trying to build towards? You know, and so a common refrain and a common journey of at least our kind of target customer and students that are, you know very classically, but it's still a very noble dream to have, which is to, build a replacement job to their nine to five that they have right now. So, so they're 10K a to, month. Right. 10K a month or you know, just you know, 100 grand, you know, six figures a year. We're still serving a lot of people that are in that phase of their journey. So like, how are you making progress? Like real, actual progress toward, you know, for them, that objective, right? You know, for them, if that's true for them. Being able to design and host virtual experiences. So almost like an event programming person or at least those skills. To you know, through Zoom or more immersion platforms like Butter, which is a lot of fun. There's a lot of like cool interactive capability in Butter.us if people want to check that out. So like, these are the sorts of things that my community team does on the day-to-day that, again, from the outside maybe folks wouldn't necessarily it's, So they do know. things
0: daily. That's interesting. So it's not like a monthly cadence. Do you share how many people are in the, this particular community? Ballpark.
1: Yep. Yeah, so the All Access Pass specifically, which is our, again, Hero product we have a click or two over 400 members already. That is brand spanking new, more or less. That's awesome. We do have some other communities. The first one out of the gate, sort of in almost like a Tesla style, like you know, Tesla first came out with a Roadster, right? Like the super fast car, right? Yeah. Our first community that we launched over two years ago, now closer to two and a half years, is called SPI Pro. This is more advanced for like the more advanced entrepreneur that's already full-time or likely close to that mark. They have different needs, different questions. It's just, you know, they're at a different point on that entrepreneurial journey. It's supposed to be more about networking, about peer-to-peer questions and engagement. We run select masterminds that, again, my community team facilitates, fosters, plays matchmaker, all those sorts of, you know, skills. That's SPI Pro. So that community, where are we at with that one? Probably close to 600 now, folks. So, and if you look then across all of it, so SPI Pro plus All Access Pass, and we even have one more, which is our learner community. That's for folks that are just even today here in 2023, hearing about and potentially getting interested in what is online entrepreneurship? So there's definitely still a pretty significant market segment of folks that have that question, that are in that spot, right? That are pure beginners. We want to have a very carefully calibrated community for them because we want them to feel like, hey, this is for me. I'm really at the beginning versus if we pump those people or marketed those people into SBI Pro, it's going to be a misfit on both sides. Why did you go down versus up first? We went up first because we just felt that we wanted to really, well, it's not per se a value judgment on any one person, but you know the, the whole notion of like the Kevin Kelly 1000 True Fans classic from kind of uh, especially even like the tech community. I think that came out yeah. in like 1999 or something. He first published it. So we really wanted to kind of target those you know, 1,000 true fans, the you know, folks that have been with us for the longest period of time, probably, in terms of like SPI's history that have a relationship with us in some capacity because they've been listening to the podcast or on our email list for five, six, seven years and deliver something really special for them first that was really kind of targeted to where they were likely at in an average sense, you know, in terms of their journey. It is also a higher price point. So that, you know, from a revenue business standpoint, like just in terms of yield, that was a part of the calibration. But yeah, so we started there. And then uh, the second one that we launched was the learner community. Because we had success here. People starting to hear about Pro or we're like, yeah, but this doesn't, this community, again, might not feel right. For me, I'm not, I'm not there yet, right? right? Or they do apply and they get rejected. Not because we don't love them, but because it's like, hey, like, based on our application, like, we can tell you, like, look, we'd love to have you in Pro one day, but we can tell that you're not yet ready for that. But we didn't have another thing to offer them, like at least initially. Right. So we wanted to build that thing and I'll be able to offer them that thing that, like, if they don't pass the application because maybe certain data points in and responses suggest that they're more at that beginner phase, it's like, hey, we'd love for you to now consider the learner community instead. We feel this is a better fit for you right now. So that's why we did learner. Makes sense. And then kind of step three, again, more recently is that to I'd to fill the delta in between and offer a more integrated experience where it's not pure community, it's community plus the curriculum. And then we do other things within All Access Pass from a curriculum standpoint that we call Pathways, where say you're interested in podcasting to so one of our bigger verticals still, we have several education products, most notably Pat's Power Up podcasting course, but we have others. So we have deliberate like do this course first and do this course second download these resources, do this homework, and then we can facilitate to the community on Circle, those sorts of collaborations sort of outside the classroom, if you will. Yeah. In terms of like outside the course, which you can't do on more traditional LMS platforms, because the only thing you can do on traditional LMS platforms is sell DIY courses. Can I interrupt you there for a second? I mean, there's so much to talk about here, but I really
0: wanted to hear the story of the key insights or things that went down that you were able to move in as partner, trusted friend, COO, CEO. If I were to go to, you know, an entrepreneurial event, one of the biggest questions on the tips of everyone's tongues is succession, finding a CEO. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to understand how that process went down in your case. We joined forces
1: formally at the end of 2018. And What happened before that? What was like the first kind of connection and stuff? It started in 2012 where Pat and I were mutually introduced. I had just started my creative agency, creative studio, targeting authors first and foremost with their books and helping them with manuscripts, largely in a writing and editing capacity. Pat was working on his first book project, uh, his personal memoir at that time. He was five years into his entrepreneurial journey. So it was just like he hired me in the beginnings of my little team. So he was one of our first clients and he quickly became just one of our most beloved. He you know, was just really easy to work with. He took feedback really well. So the relationship just bloomed from that one project to being like, we did then over time or over several years a lot on a contract basis for Pat. We inherited producing the podcast, kind of soup to nuts. We took over the blog in terms of doing a lot of the editorial and publishing work there. And then increasingly, uh, at least between Pat and me personally, like we became friends. And then I was sort of becoming pseudo business partner for hire. How do you escalate that kind of relationship? How did it work such that? It's not unlike dating, especially if anyone listening is also like a service pro, you're a freelancer, like you, you kind of know that client relationships are kind of like dating. You, you go on some great dates, you go on some maybe not so great dates. Some are going to be transactional. Some are going to be more than that and longer term. And at least for Pat and me, over the years, so this is going from like, again, 2012, which is when we started on a very small project, all the way to then in 2018, six years between 2012 and 2018, we grew a lot independently, we grew a lot together, I became Uncle Matt to his kids, so we got really close personally. And to continue with the dating metaphor, I kind of bent the knee, like I was out in San Diego, we had gotten into a rhythm where I'd fly out there every quarter and kind of have a leadership Ish meeting, you know, for him in SPI, a couple other people were involved, so pseudo business partner like, right, uh, if you will. And towards, I guess it was maybe mid twenty eighteen on one of those trips, I was just like, "Look, man, we're better together than apart." And I see what you're trying to do, and I've contributed a lot to the vision for the future of the company. And you know, I'm seven years in or almost seven years in on the agency, and yeah, an agency is tiring. I'll confess that, like, it's, it's a tough business, an exciting one, and a worthwhile one, but it can be hard. So it's just like, look, why don't we just merge the companies together? And at that point, a lot of my team had kind of become Team SPI by default, just because we, were, we had scaled so much with Pat. So we folded it in together. So like my team came along with it. It's not like I laid off my team. We brought the team in-house. I joined forces with Pat as co-owner. I was initially COO in the immediate aftermath of the deal. And we kept going from there.
0: As founders of remote companies, we all face hiring challenges like hiring today instead of next week or next quarter, scaling our teams quickly, and even just defining what we want in a candidate, where to find them, how much to pay them, and how to recruit them. There's a lot of questions. Hiring's complicated, but it doesn't need to be with remotefirstrecruiting.com. It's a service from our team where we help founders like you solve these hiring hangups. Even if you're not hiring today, you got to take advantage of our 15 minute free strategy call. It's with our senior recruiter, Greg Valentine. He's not a sales guy. He's a senior recruiter, industry expert, and he's helped place hundreds of remote candidates in companies just like yours. He can discuss with you the patterns we're seeing in the marketplace, share with you case studies, and talk about how you can build a rock solid hiring strategy. Hiring doesn't need to be hard. Let our team do the heavy lifting. TMBA listeners, take advantage of this strategy call. It's a simple way to grow a better business. So head on over to our site, remotefirstrecruiting.com, where we believe hiring the right talent is the best way to grow a great remote business. Schedule a call with our team today at remotefirstrecruiting.com. I love the story. I wanted to hear it some in long form because I do think a lot of our listeners are agency owners and they contemplate the end games for agencies often. Yeah. They're not typically great to sell, but often they're great for incubating products or building yep. relationships, finding what's valuable in the marketplace. But you're presenting a whole nother idea, which I think is a real opportunity for people. And it's maybe one that's not talked about often because a lot of the businesses we love and follow online are just coming to maturity where they could tolerate such a partnership to bring in a Mm -hmm. co-owner and a CEO. A lot of our businesses were much smaller five years ago, you know, and now it's like, hey, we need adults in the room, so to speak. I'm curious about two things. What were the things that like you brought to the table that like Pat was like, oh, Matt really knows this stuff. And then how do you parlay that into like an equity conversation? There's no roadmap for how to negotiate these kinds of
1: once-in-a-lifetime deals? Yeah, great questions. So I think on the front end, the first question, operations would be the first thing to maybe just kind of summarize and and say that. If anyone has read Gina Wickman's work, which is really good, he has several books. Uh, There's one called Rocket Fuel that talks about, in his terms or his language, visionary versus integrator. It's a very good book. It's a very good book. I just finished it last week, yeah. It's a bit reductive if people don't actually read the book, like there's a lot more going on than just what I just summarized. So read the book. I very frankly think of myself as both that and the book does allow for weirdos like me, I think that are kind of a blend of both capabilities and mindsets, you know, visionary plus integrator. But in the immediateness of the deal and the relationship at that point, it was, you know, absolutely a visionary. He's fantastic. That probably goes without saying. And I'm not suggesting he's not an integrator. I would, in fact, argue that he's also a weirdo that is both, like, he is phenomenal with podcasting, software, hardware, gear. Like, he is an integrator in in different dimensions. To interrupt and
0: clarify, we would talk about, an integrator is essentially a a head of operations, COO.
1: Yeah, so a very process-oriented person, a very, like, data-probably-centric individual, someone that knows how to, you scale. So, at least for me, that was also team. How do you lead a team? How do you build a team? How do you develop a team's performance? So performance management. How do you think about a PL? and l not suggesting that Pat doesn't know what a P&L is, but like really good at finance, kind of all things finance, including p and construction and management, budgets, revenue forecasting and modeling, scenario building, all of these things, right? And not maybe every integrator is great at finance. That's kind of where like read the book and there's adaptations right. to like the notion. But those were the immediate strengths and the complementary capabilities, at least in the business sense, that I've provided in addition to Pat. So it was a great yin and yang sort of combination. When we consummated the deal, so to speak, right? And this, I'll come to question two here around like equity and ownership stuff. But there was trust and there was rapport and there was already proof because we'd been working collaboratively and pretty in an integrated way over the years. He knew my strengths, I knew his strengths we had done that dating for so long that like when I bent the knee again, so to speak, like we just knew it was the right fit. We really did. In terms of, the, you know, ownership structure, you're right that there isn't like a roadmap or a singular way of doing it. You can look at p ls you can extrapolate enterprise value. There's things you can kind of leverage from, you know, the tech community, which is probably more accessible benchmarks, but this isn't tech. So, I mean, I don't now, if I even remember exactly the math that we did do, I did the math. So it ended up in a 70-30 you know, relationship, 70 to Pat, 30 to me. Is that kind uh, of like felt good? You put your thumb in the stew and you're like,
0: man, Pat really built this thing? Or is there more of
1: a methodology behind it than that? It was both. I would say it was both like quantitative and qualitative. There was a quantification to where the SPI business with that, its revenue streams, its historicals, T12 is pretty common to like look at. So trailing 12 in terms of gross revenue. Certainly you look at EBITDA in terms of earnings, you know, bottom line. And then like the SPI business I'm like, fundamentally a different business than an agency. Like yes, I have financials. Yes, I have my own T12 and I have my own earnings, but you know, fundamentally different. SPI is selling media-based products that are some degree, infinitely scalable. Uh, an agency is not by itself, infinitely scalable. So like, then that's sort of where it becomes, becomes a little bit more qualitative and how you want to marry up the numbers. So you're bringing
0: in a lot of costs to the deal with your staff, but what about your revenue, your other clients and stuff like that? I mean, a lot of that you probably dropped to the floor. How did that work out?
1: Yeah, that's not at all wrong because we didn't bring any service work. So we did not pull through any client's we did right by as many clients as we could in terms of advance notice, in terms of brokering very warm handoffs to other folks that we knew, either other agencies or freelancers based on or whatever the situation was. You know, we didn't want to leave our clients stranded. It's a mix of like, yo, I'm giving up this opportunity. So you should pay me in paper, like equity a little bit for the fact that I'm moving, like leaving an yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Well, that's classic opportunity cost analysis or risk analysis kind of maybe. Right. Similar, but different in the intersect kind of modes of thinking. It's interesting. It's
0: powerful that you have that business as part of leverage in a deal like that, though. I hadn't considered that going into it. That's
1: cool. Another way of, I guess, considering. And then again, you can begin to run scenarios involving numbers. And therefore, you can get some quantification is like, yes, there's an expansive cost center coming in. But Pat was paying us not insignificant dollars to begin with. So there's the efficiency of the dollars, right? So no longer is Pat paying agency rates or SPI is paying agency rates. You get at cost rates. So you get a cost savings at a unit level based on that alone. And then you get full-time focus and expansive capacity where we can then produce more. We can produce more for SPI. We can do more courses. We can get more podcast episodes out there. We can do XYZ other things, right? So there's the ability to then grow on the SPI side arguably faster now that the team is 100% devoted to just SPI. How do you manage the performance of your team? What is managing performance? I look at it as maximizing their potential, you know, either in the current state, as well as trying to assess with said person, what is potential future state? How can I build their capacity to process information, to enhance their judgment, to make decisions, make bigger decisions with more or in more complex scenarios with increasingly as you move up sort of a a leadership structure, you have less and less information, less perfect information. That's kind of the gig. So anyway, I look at performance as setting others up for as much success as possible in maximizing their potential. How much time does that take? Always more than you think. What are some examples of how you spend that time then? Some of the... I'd say like the implementation around that are one-on-ones, how do you run a good one-on-one? A lot of that's actually like coaching as a leader. And if you adopt a sort of servant leadershipness in terms of your orientation, servant leadership is like an, an established concept. It's very akin or, or intersects with the notion of coaching. So like you're trying to get them to arrive at the answers. You're asking deliberate questions. It's a bit Socratic a lot of yep. the time. And you are intentionally putting other people in situations that are uncomfortable, but not so uncomfortable that it like breaks them. Do you have a detailed example
0: that pops into your mind of maybe if you could anonymize a situation where
1: what does that uncomfort feel like? So one representative example would be even recently, we had a meeting, a conversation with one of our third party partners. So a service provider that's not in-house that we have hired to specialize in a certain area. And my director was in the room for this meeting and technically reports in through this director's function. I was in the room to help. And my director really should have been her meeting to really like set the agenda, make sure that we have clear outcomes that we're intending to We're transitioning kind of from phase one of work into phase two of work for this particular initiative. And she didn't fully get there, right, in terms of really owning and kind of controlling the meeting. So... Part of the uncomfortableness to come back to the point is, but it's for her benefits, for her professional growth, is to then have in a one-on-one setting capacity, like delivering some of that feedback to say, hey, this is what I observed. How did you feel about that? Were there reasonings as to why maybe you weren't as assertive in the meeting, at least as maybe I would have expected? I want to learn and hear from you how you were perceiving that conversation in that meeting. Because my expectation and my desire for you is, I intend for you to be the authority figure, not only on this track of work, but this whole function, right? That's your job. So what can I do to help you have potentially more confidence and more assertiveness in this meeting? Because I'm trying to support your growth and development. Are there gaps in my awareness that maybe I didn't see in the room? So kind of just having that conversation, it can be a little bit uncomfortable, but the underlying intention that I then make overt is like, this is helpful for you because I'm trying to set you up for success. I want this other vendor that we have hired, the service partner, to continually see you as the authority figure based on what we're talking about and not me. It very genuinely is a like this, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So in the team dynamic, and there's some classic modeling around, this may give a better answer to your question, Dan, sorry. Uh, There's some really, really good holds up modeling around the four phases of team-based performance. And it goes, first you form, you form a team, people come together. Second is you storm. Things don't work. There's different personalities. There's tensions. There's, I would do it this way. So you storm. A lot of teams don't get through the storming phase. They hit the storming phase. They don't like it. This is awkward. This is hard. And then something happens. The team disbands. Someone leaves, whatever, because it's, again, it's hard. But if you can get through the storming phase with sensibility, with good leadership, whoever's leading that team... You then get to third phase is norming. You start to figure out your normal operating ways. Like you've learned about each other, right? You start to make decisions as a group to how you function. You you normalize, right? So that's three. And then four is performing. That's really then where you're optimizing workflow. You're optimizing decisions. People are becoming more confident in their roles and they're growing. So to get to the Holy Grail there around like high performance, you have to form, storm, normalize, norm, and then perform.
0: Walk me through your week. I'd like to just see when your meetings happen when.
1: Okay, so I always aspire to do better on this front. (laughs) I have my leadership meeting on Mondays. Those are my direct reports. I have three directors. I have ops, marketing, and community. We align on their priorities for the week as short a list as possible. That should align to that quarter's OKRs. OKRs is one of several well established goal setting frameworks. O stands for objective, KRs stands for key results. Key results are analogous to just goals. So we have declared OKRs at a quarterly level. Those OKRs then support the master OKR for the year. We can then bring fidelity to that that's more attainable on a quarter by quarter basis each of my three teams have responsibilities that tie into that. And then week over week, what everyone should be working on in terms of like their top three priorities should be things that relate all the way up that stack. Does the meeting have an agenda? Yeah, we hit North Stars. Everyone has a North Star, like central KPI. You know, my ops person is cash on hand. You know, she's just looking at cash flow. Mine is MRR. My community person is we cheat and she has two. She has churn and LTV for our members. So essentially, she's all about retention. I'm about gross. My ops person's like looking at the finances and managing cash flow, And marketing, right now, we're prioritizing traffic to our community pages. This one kind of, kind of moves a little bit based on kind of what our priority is in any given quarter or year for marketing. But right now, we're just going hard at our community-based product. So we're anointing traffic to our product pages, you know, our key sales pages. So are they proposing to-do lists to you and
0: justifying them things and then talking about blockers? Is that basically the idea? A little bit
1: of that. Yeah, so we go over Star metrics. We go over what are their top three priorities for the week. There's then some debate if necessary on like, are those truly aligned to the OKRs? That they report like something on that list? And it is self-reported. that And I'm like, Ew. like that feels like it's a distraction from... XYZ other thing, then like there might be some conversation about it because there might be a good reason. And I don't I don't have awareness of that. Yeah. Uh, and then absolutely blockers kind of coming out of classic like sprint sort of and stand up culture, which would say we have like one model of the infused used elements of different models over time. We're still on Monday. I feel like I need a weekend already. What happens the rest of the week? We are trying to have a lot of open time. We're always trying to like deload meetings, be more asynchronous as possible. We are slack mega users. We have also, and this was a thing last year, we have adapted into a four-day work week that is both awesome and difficult at the same time because you're reducing by 20% the team's capacity. We don't work on Fridays. I cheat sometimes, I have to, so does Pat. But the team, as we, and we try hard, is to optimize into a four-day work week. So our week technically ends today in terms of when we're recording this on Thursdays. I have a little pet theory on this, Matt, that I think it might
0: make sense to like, deload the top of the day rather than the total number of days. This is the first time I ever thought of this, but we kind of do it naturally in our team where like Thursday is a little shorter and then Friday is a half day. So at least like, yeah, you get the opportunity to like finalize the week
1: and reply to clients basically. Well, especially for agency owners in a service world, a little bit different than ours. Though we're starting to blend because one might, I think correctly argue, I argue that community like is a service. Yeah, your community members are doing stuff on Friday. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I'm actually working on an article for Entrepreneur Magazine called Community as a Service. I'm not oh, like cool. the genius that has like, coined that term. I've seen it used a couple times. We have a retro, kind of a classic model or a classic element, two models. Come back. You come back Thursday. Come back Thursday. It's all hands. Pat tries to make as many as he can. And we talk about what went well this week, what didn't go that well this week. We actually hit both the work front and the personal front. We try to genuinely center up safety in the room and, and know each other personally. So because, I mean, energy and, I mean, it comes from everywhere. So if something's struggling, I have young kids, sometimes my young kids bring down a lot of challenges. I, I have a baby that sometimes keeps me up at night, right? So I'll talk yeah. about that stuff because like, man, I've been really dragging this week, you know, and that's why X, Y, or Z thing didn't get done. And it's not meant to be an excuse, but it's like, hey, we want to care about people. We want to know what's going on.
0: I think there's a lot of people who get into business because they want freedom and then what you're describing sounds like a lot of responsibility for people struggling yeah, to maybe take on responsibility because it does feel like eight times out of 10, that is the path to growth in business. How would you encourage them to take on that? And I don't know, maybe try not to lose sleep doing it or try not to give up their original freedom
1: values. Just leveraging my own um, personal experience. Like before I was married and before I had kids, I will answer that in a different way then now I am married and I have kids. And that's genuinely my most important role, if you will, is being a husband and a dad. So like earlier on in your career, especially if you're forming an agency, growing an agency, if you put in maybe a little extra effort, that does go a mile. It really does. With relationships, with testing different concepts around how you're selling, the whole notion of productized services sounds appealing, like do more research, test some of that stuff out, get feedback and try to optimize for velocity. Go fast you know, learn and fail forward is a classic notion, but it's true. And then keep taking more responsibility and and be probably more of like in a yes position, you know, earlier on in your career or in the earlier stages of a company. Because you're operating on a lot of assumptions, you know, early stages and early days, whether it's, you know, not a ton of experience yet and or early days of a team, you don't really fully know the capabilities of your team. So you're operating on more assumptions. But as you go, those assumptions become more facts. You learn more things are more provable. You have greater observations. You figure out what's working in the market. You know what sort of pitches are working with clients better than others. You make decisions around standardization for what you're selling and how you do it and how you deliver. That's maybe coinciding with just life progressing and different things are happening on the home front for you. So like for now, I'm increasingly in a spot where I've evolved from being in a, in a default yes position into a default no position and yeah. bringing more focus and try to really optimize on the core things that are sustainable that are, you know, profit centers, not saying so that we don't continue to exercise creativity because we do and try to push the envelope because we do, but just a, a different phase, you know, of both life and business. So go fast, go hard, you know, in the early days and then make good decisions and start optimizing for sustainability as you go.
0: Matt, I want to thank you for sharing your story on the TNBA pod. It was amazing talking to you.
1: Thanks for having me, Dan. This was fantastic. want to
0: give a big shout out to Matt for coming by the TMBA pod. You can see everything he's up to over at smartpassiveincome.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the topics discussed in this episode or anything you want to hear coming down the pike. In fact, got a pretty big mailbag episode coming up very shortly. The way to get involved is dan at tropicalmba.com. That's it for this week. We'll see you next Thursday morning.